0: The U.S. almost never wins gold medals. There's this Anne Maria kid. Let's give her some money and send her to France. Maybe we'll bring home a medal for a change. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. You may know her as Ronda Rousey's mother, but Anne Maria DeMar forged the family's legacy in judo. As a professional educator and Olympian, she knows what it takes to coach and raise winners, here it is, episode
1: 626.
0: A lot of athletes are in sports where the probability of making a living from it is minute. And I'm a statistician. My doctor's is in Applied Statistics, okay? So At some point, maybe when you get done and maybe five, 10 years down the road, you realize I spent 15, 20 years of my life doing this. What for? And I would like to argue that it has benefits that perhaps you don't see in your 20s and maybe not even in your 40s.
1: Uh, I don't think I'd argue with you on that in any way. I think uh, just in terms of business and the people we've encountered, the people that have played sports at a much higher level tend to be much better teammates and actually better employees and better people for me to work with. I mean, to the point where it's one of our prerequisites when we start meeting people, especially people that apply to work for us. I want to know like, you know, what was your athletic background? Did you like, what level did you play for? Um, I find that people that have actually competed and trained for something, tend to be much more resilient and easier for me personally to work with.
0: You know, when I got my first engineering job, they said that's one of the reasons they hired me was I was the national judo champion and had a black belt. And I said, they figured that shows your ability to set a goal and work toward it, which is funny because my, that has nothing. I mean, judo has nothing to do with industrial engineering. But I know we could we could talk about a lot of things. I mean, you you well, just brought up skills. So well,
1: ha- said, um, let's start a little bit of, well let's just order <laughs> with a or start with a little bit of origin story. Like, how did you get into judo?
0: You know, everyone asked that, and the truth. I'm going to make up a good lie sometime about you know, my <laughs> family of ninjas, or no, I was a really short, fat little kid. And I had super thick glasses. I mean, to this day, I wear like industrial strength contacts and wear glasses over that to see small. And I'm sitting in my room eating and reading books. And my mother says, "You cannot do this. This is cannot be your life." And she puts me in the car, drives me to the YMCA, and pushes me out and tells me to go join something. And there are two significant things about this. One, my family had no money. I mean, I how my mom got the money for the year to get a Y membership because she was able to pay for it for one year. And after that, I was able to stay in judo because they made me an assistant instructor because my mom did not believe in charity. So I went into the Y and the second point that's important to know is this is before Title IX. So there were a very small number of sports that allowed girls to join in the town where I lived because back then they just, oh, girls don't like sports or we don't want to have girls or they're too much trouble. So my choices were track, which short fat kids don't run very well, uh, swimming, which fat little girls do not want to put on a swimsuit. And the judo coach allowed girls to join because he had a sister who had wanted to do judo, who was a black belt with a home So those are my three choices. I, you know, I'm short, I'm hard, I'm still short. Uh, I'm hard to get under, right? Because, you know, you need to get below the center of gravity, judo. You can tell I do judo because I'm still, like, doing those moves, right? Like, talking to you. Uh, and I was hard to push over. Just think of trying to throw a stump because my big brothers, what big brothers are, used to call me stumpy. And so, and I have big brothers, so I was good at fighting, right? So I was good at it right away and won a lot of stuff and stuck it out. But you said an interesting thing, you know, when you talk about being good teammates, my late husband played basketball, was super good at it in high school. And he said to me that he thought a big difference between men and women that he hired were, was that women, and this is Never Remember Again before Title IX, did not play team sports. They didn't have that opportunity. And he said, so I hire women who were athletes tended to have been, you know, as the the outlier, the judo player, but they were in track, they were in swimming, they were maybe in gymnastics. And he said, the thing I learned from sports, being a basketball player was to be able to count on other people on the team, that even if you were the best guy, and he says, let's be honest, my small town in Oregon, I was the best guy, but you're one guy on the team. And he said, women who were really good athletes, often had to rely only on themselves. Now, of course, my youngest daughter played soccer. I I know she had a coach for a women's basketball team. It's no longer true to anywhere near the same extent. But I also think there may be a difference between people who compete in team sports and people in individual sports.
1: So what year did you, uh, what year would this mean that you got into judo?
0: I got into judo in 1971.
1: All right. So we're like, mid seventies Bruce Lee kind of, uh, you know, like that whole kind of, uh, you know, beginning of like a Kung Fu theater and all that. So you're in this kind of like beginning phase of it. I mean, were there a lot of other female judo players? I mean, were there, you know, you're from a small town, like, did you have to travel to different places? I'm wondering like how you necessarily found competition and how, and then like what the process was in terms of like going to like the next level and going on and winning, you know, titles.
0: There were not very many female judo players in my town. And when I started, there were probably a couple other girls in the club. And generally people would come and go, but sometimes I was the only girl on the mat. And I say girl, not woman, because I was like 12, 13 years old. And to get to competition, I lucked out in a couple hours away there was a judo club and somebody who was very involved and they would hold a tournament every month. And that way they raised some money for their club. Right. So every month had a tournament and they had a good number of girls at their club. And it's funny because one of the girls I used to compete against all the time, Vicki Daniels, still runs a club out in Indiana. So there was, there were local tournaments at least once a month thanks to them. And then other places would have them. And yes, it was always a two, three, four hour drive to a tournament at the least. The very first tournament was the one and only tournament that my judo club, the Alton YMCA judo club held. But other than that, I was hopping in a car with somebody else's parents because again, even the gas money, people complain about gas money, gas prices now, but perhaps they forget that there have always been people that couldn't afford gas no matter how cheap it was. So I would hop in a car with another parent, you know, their kids and get a ride to the tournament. Or when I got to be 14, 15, I would hitchhike to the tournaments, which I was, you know, a hundred pound, 15 year old girl. But of course I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof because I was 15 and knew everything. Mm -hmm.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. Story checks out. So then as you progress uh, and then like um, how long did it take from the time? I mean, you were how old when you started? 12. 12. And then by the time you were 18 and 20, like, was there an idea that you were, uh, extremely gifted at what you were doing and that you were, uh, you know, different than other people in terms of like your application or was it just, you know, steadily chipping away at this thing. And then all of a sudden you end up rising to a, you know, pretty high, uh, you know, position in this.
0: Well, by the time I was 19, I had won the junior nationals, the senior nationals, the collegiate nationals and U S open. So I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, uh, it's, it's like my old cheeto coach used to always say I ain't bragging if you can back it up sure but hmm. i always say and i kind of followed this with my children there's an advantage to being poor which sounds strange there aren't many advantages let me tell you that there are i did many advantages to being poor but one of them is i couldn't afford to go to Tournaments. I couldn't afford to go to the national championships. I couldn't afford to go to any international tournaments. So the first national tournament, I won the state championships and they paid my way. So until I won the nationals and in Illinois, where I was living at the time, you've got the city of Chicago, which is a pretty big city, right? So I'd be better than everybody in the state to be able to go to nationals because my mom could not afford to send me. So unless I won, I couldn't go. Now, back then, first place got their way paid. Second place, they got half their expenses. And third place got good luck. So all the kids whose parents had money that were second or third, they went. And it's the same thing with international competition. If you were number one in the U.S., maybe you would get your way paid. But since it was only women, in quotes, maybe you didn't. And so... I didn't go to any international tournaments because I was a college student sending money home to the other kids. So I had looking back on an overestimate of my ability, right? Cause I'm beating all the kids around my small town. And then when I get to win the state championship, I've won the championships in a fairly good state before, fairly big state before I even go to the nationals. And I believe my first year I, placed third. And then the next time I placed uh, fourth. And then I won. And then for many years straight, I don't think I lost to an American. And then I lost maybe once or twice to an American for the rest of my whole competitive career. So I, I wasn't able to go places until I had earned my way there and was good enough that somebody said, hey, the U.S., almost never wins gold medals. There's this Anne Maria kid. Let's give her some money and send her to France. Maybe we'll bring home a medal for a change. And then in
2: 1984, that led to a gold in Vienna. So was there international travel before that, or was that your first trip overseas to compete?
0: No, I went to, like I said, there were were a couple of guys, one of them is still alive, Bruce Toops and Frank Bulletin. They were both involved in the national organization. They both had money. And they wanted the U.S. to win. And when I started coming up, they said, "Where do you need to go to get better?" So I went to the Pan Am's, Pan Games, and won that in Venezuela. I went to the Austrian Open and won that. Um, I went to the Pan American or Pacific Rims in Hong Kong and won that. So those were all in 1983. Uh, Went to the Canada Cup. I think that was in '83. uh, A couple of times. Well only 83 once, but I think I went there in 83 and 84. So yeah, from 82 to 84, I won a few international tournaments in between having a baby and being an engineer.
1: So when, um, when I was reading in your bio, you, you actually moved to Japan and lived in Tokyo as an exchange student.
0: Yes. I went to college there for a year. It was great.
1: And, uh, did that really expand your training?
0: It made me a better judo player. They did not allow women to compete there except for one tournament a year, which they did not allow me to compete in because I was not Japanese and not the best behaved person either. (laughs) But it was really good for me. It was just a chance to learn from a lot of different people.
2: You mentioned that you did strength and conditioning, so work in the weight room outside of judo. When did you start to pick up the barbell, lift weights, and start to see the benefits of that extra work outside of sports skill?
0: I'd say my last couple of years, when I was really successful, so maybe there's a correlation there. We had a trainer, he just unfortunately passed away, Mitch Lewis. And that was back then, that was a very unusual thing for people to have like a personal trainer, strength coach. I didn't know of anybody else really that had one. If you had a strength coach, you competed in weightlifting or bodybuilding people in other sports that I knew didn't. And Mitch had a very small number of people that he worked with. I was one, my coach who won seven um, national championships was another, his cousin who won a gold medal in rowing in the Olympics was another. And I would go and meet up with Mitch. I mean, our whole judo team would that was working with him and for each individual person, he would have a workout. You do this, because we only saw him once a week, usually because we all had jobs and he had a different job too. He was a PE teacher. He'd give everybody their workout on Saturday, maybe twice a week, Saturday and Sunday, we'd work with him. He'd watch what we did, you know, correct our form and, send us back with a a list of things we were supposed to do during the week. And I remember meeting him. And now my weight division was 56 kilos, 123.2 pounds. And he had something like, I want you to be able to deadlift 365 pounds, you know, by the time you go off to world championships. I looked at him and I said, Mitch, it's three times what I weigh. And he said, let me get this straight. I'm the coach. You're the athlete. Shut the fuck up which I know on your other podcast, it's not how you say toxic, but actually Mitch was a really good guy. And he believed in his, his results would speak for themselves. And they did. It was, it was very, very good for me because as I said, I was working a 40 hour week and on the world team. So he would give me workouts. When you get up in the morning, do this, here's your morning workout, do this weightlifting, do these sprints, do whatever, here's your new workout. So thank God General Dynamics had a gym and we were by the ocean. So I could go run eight miles if I needed to at lunch. And then in the evenings I did judo.
2: Heavy workload. Yeah, professional athletes a little
1: different these days. (laughs) No, no. I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, she makes a great point about Title IX. I mean, when all of a sudden now you start taking, you know, because at the time all the money was dedicated to men's sports. So now all of a sudden there's a little bit of quality in that and being able to push a little dough that way. Um, So you're living out in California um, at the time. And how how did you get out to California?
0: I got a job. I was Um. living at the Olympic Training Center, actually, and – it was not my, it was not my thing at the time. I don't know how it is now, but basically got three hats in a cut. People went to practice and I just thought I need to be going forward in my life more than just going to judo and I had an MBA. I had left my job at Honeywell to go there for train, um at the OTC and I was pregnant. So uh, my ex-husband, my, at the time, my husband was also a judo player. So we were both living there. And they said, I was a little bit crazy. I won the Colorado State Championships four months pregnant. Maya still says half that trophy belongs to her. But you can't cut weight. It'd be pregnant. I mean, that's just stupid, right? So I thought, if I can't train, why am I here? And, you know, if I can't really train at that level, and General Dynamics offered me a job and good money. So I I hopped to, to San Diego, had a baby, and... Probably the week, a week or two after Mario was born, I went up to Tenry Dojo in Los Angeles, which is a couple-hour drive away. My friend, Dawn, had called me up and said, oh, you got to come up here and train with us. I met this new guy. My boyfriend's a great coach. you got to come up here. So I go up and I work out. And, you know, I'm just kind of baby. And a lot of this stuff sounds insane in retrospect, right? But I was young, so I knew everything. So I'm working out and I swear, Henry. we at the time, I believe there were some tournaments, if we'd entered as a country, we would have come in second behind the rest of the US, our club. So I'm up there, I'm training. And at the end of practice, I lay down on the mat. And I swear, if the JoJo had caught fire, I would have, I would have just had to burn up. I was just done. And this guy comes up and kicks me, you know, kind of, Pushed through this foot and said, I have never been interested in women's sports before. And I just got interested. I'm your new coach. And I was gonna say to him, Can I swear on your show? I guess I yeah, like, oh, yeah, of
1: course, please. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was say to
0: him, what the fuck do you, think you are. And I see my friend Don behind him, like waving her hands and mouthing, that's, you know, pointing at that's him, that's my boyfriend. That's, you know. So, so, okay, fine. You know, Don is to this day a good friend of mine. So I get up and I'm like, yeah, who, who, whatever. And he actually turned out to be a fantastic coach, not fantastic human being. She eventually dumped him. I told her every week, dump this guy. (laughs) But um, he was a great coach. And he said to me early on, he said, "You and me, it's business." He said, "I want you to win because it will make me look good as a coach, and it will help me." And you know what? That's perfectly fine because I wanted me to win too. And if he wanted me to win because, you know, he liked people from San Diego, I didn't care. And I think, you know, like I said, I listened to your podcast. He was talking about the platinum rule. I thought that was brilliant because everybody needs something different, I think, from their coach. And when when my daughter was on the Olympic team, one of the coaches said to me, you know, some athletes need, a kick in the kick in the ass of me to pat on the back. You know, what kind of athlete is Rhonda? And I said, Rhonda is the kind that needs a pat on the back, a kiss on the cheek and a couple of donuts. You know, she's very, very much wants to have a personal relationship with the coach and reinforce me. I just want you to help me win. You know, outside of there, you could be you know, doing unspeakable things with small desert lizards. I don't care. Right? I just want to win. You want to help me win, and then we will both go out a merry way.
1: Yeah, uh, I kind of go with the latter. I just wanted a coach to be able to provide me the information I need to allow me to go out and just kick ass. And that's all right. I needed. Yep. And um, um, so, my history—I played in the NFL for about a decade, and uh, I used to run into coaches that wanted to be real buddy buddy. And I remember just being like, "Just make me better." Like, uh, you know. And it's pretty interesting and pretty quick when you see people that might not have the God, what's, like, the skill set to help you progress? And at that point, you start kind of looking other places. So whereas a lot mm-hmm. of other people felt very indoctrinated and very, like, close in this, I was like, no, nah, fuck all that. Just help me be the best.
0: Well, you know, my friend Pat Burris okay. a really terrific coach, and he said something I, one time that I have remembered. He said, honey, I'm 53 years old. I don't need a 15-year-old friend.
2: <laughs> so he said, if oh, I'm
0: coaching the Junior World Team, I'm the coach and I, you know, and I kind of thought that in retrospect, you know, I, I have friends. So I want, what I need here is coach to help. Like you said, help me get better.
1: Well, uh, my daughters are 10 years old. I got twin girls and, uh, my one daughter's pretty good swimmer. And so all of a sudden she moved up real quick and they put her up in the advanced and all of a sudden she doesn't seem to like it as much. And so I'm like, Hey, like you were kicking ass, like what's going on. And she's like, I don't know if I really connected and like the coach that much. And I'm like, why do you care? And it was interesting, like listening to her and my wife's like girls, most girls are really like looking to like, have like a, you know, want to do well to please their coach. She's mm-hmm. like, you're the type of person where you almost want to succeed in spite of the motherfucker. <laughs> and um, I'm like, you know, and that's been a big change for me in terms of like, now I have daughters cause I grew up with all brothers and, you know, played in the NFL. So, you know, we never saw any women unless they were in the stands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's pretty interesting now coaching and seeing my daughters where like they you know want to do well because you know this individual believes in them and it's uh it's completely foreign to how I was raised and what I you know and, and my approach to it
0: well I many years ago when I was a professor full-time I taught sports psychology uh, and one of the things that I always asked asked because I had a lot of student athletes in my classes is what's the difference between a good coach and a great coach. And I've looked at this a lot over the years and I, well, what's your opinion actually, before I say, what do you think is the difference? What determines between a good coach and a great coach? Um,
1: I think, um, I think one is integrity. If, uh, and that's an interesting piece because I've worked with a lot of coaches that were pieces of shit. Um, and I, you know, for me uh, I'm, uh like i think disingenuous and more importantly fake people um it's very hard as a coach to stand up there and like you know like uh, you know basically lead a bunch of young individuals in a certain way if you're like a pretty morally bankrupt individual at least for me personally so like i had like you know within the nfl you have these coaches getting up there telling you you know hey you got to act a certain way and then a guy goes out and gets busted with uh you know a hooker and gets a dui like that type of stuff really fucking bothers me where I'm like, you know what, like if you're going to lead men and, and individuals and tell me, hey, this is how you need to be, like your house needs to be in order. So like integrity was a big part of that for me. Um, You know, anything that you've ever heard on any of these podcasts, like for me personally, uh, this is how I live my life. It's not a facade. I'm not trying to create a, a you know, an image. Um, you know, I have a, a great wife and kids and like, and that's important to me. I'm not going to say that on the podcast and then all of a sudden go out and do a bunch of shady shit. Like it's just not who I am. So I think integrity is one, um, being able to like, and then here's another issue I have with coaches, uh, to me. And the joke for me is that coaches are usually people that are standing around watching me work and uh <laughs> playing football. You know, these coaches were out of shape. They were fat. Like, and you know, I'm standing around, they're screaming at me blowing their whistles and trying to get on my ass and all the other individuals in hundred degree heat when they're standing around, basically not even, you know, almost ready to pass out. And mm-hmm. so like, that's a big piece for me is like, I would never ask somebody to do something that I physically have not done or couldn't do myself. So there's a, you know, that piece of integrity. And then also uh, I think you should have enough knowledge base to be able to provide your athletes with uh, the best information to allow them to be most successful. So I sometimes think a lot of coaches are, um, are short or small motherfuckers who um, are doing a job and then they almost become a little competitive with the kids when they see those that actually have great potential. And I've run into a lot of small minded coaches that were trying to guard their little fiefdoms. And uh, I think at the end of the day, like, didn't benefit their coaches. Like side note, I got hit up two days ago by a, a PT that I know locally and um, a former, um, a bunch of my teammates play for Michigan. Uh, he's like, Hey, this, this, this kid, whose dad played with a bunch of your former teammates, um, he's a local kid. He hurt his shoulder. His dad was asking if there's anybody that can coach some offensive line stuff, and I didn't know anybody. Didn't know anybody, and I'm like, no. And then he's like, can you do it? And I'm like, yeah, I can do it. I just don't have a ton of time. So then the dad hit me up today, and uh, I have this really interesting thing with um, if you if you have the ability to help people, you should be able you should help people. And so my thing to the dad is like, Hey man, I want, I don't want to get like, I'm not taking any money and I won't do it for that. But the kid can show up two days a week at this time. Uh, I will effectively put that kid in the best position where he can probably go start as a rookie uh, for Michigan. If he wants to go there, like if he can do the work and he can listen, I can take him on this and I can show him all the intangibles. But at the end of the day, he has to want to do it and has to show up and, and, you know, have that intrinsic motivation to be the best. Like I'm not like the type of, person. And I can't, and I never really looked for coaches, you know, and I'm sure you've seen this. You've, uh, you've probably been around coaches where they are able to like transform the player into something and allow them to believe in something bigger than themselves. And I, I've had coaches like that for me. Um, that's not who I am. I can provide you the skills. I can sharpen your blade, but at the end of the day, you have to want to strike with it. And uh, that was what I told this guy. I'm like, Hey, if this kid can show up, uh, I'll teach him all the skills to where when he shows up the first day, they'll think that this kid's a phenom but he has to show up and do the work. And, um, and the dad's like, what's going to cost? I'm like, no, I don't want to get paid. Uh, if I want to get paid, the kid will clean the gym or something. Cause we have a, here in power athletes, a big, we have a, I have 16 acres out here in Texas. And then where we're at right here is our office. And then we have a big, you know, building training facility on the property. So I'm like, it's my own space. If he shows up and he wants to kick ass, send him. If he doesn't, then there's, I'm sure there's somebody else out there for him and I'm not the right person. So I think for me as a coach, uh, I think it's uh, integrity, um, being able to, um, you know, not be disingenuous, not ask somebody to do something that you can already do, and then at the end of the day, have enough skill and enough wherewithal to know, um, you know, that my job is to be able to provide this kid the information so that he can go on and, you know, do great things with it and not to stand in his way. I
2: agree with all that. My answer real quick. Focusing on the the good, difference between a good and a great coach, focusing on the emotional – state of the athlete. So how do they react to a miss? How do they react when a call doesn't go their way? How do they act uh, towards their teammates and aiming to train that? How are they responding to conditioning? Are they acting like it's the most difficult thing, throwing their gear off? I currently coach high school lacrosse, throwing their gear off as soon as they're done with the task. We're standing tall and ready for more so that that emotional response to stress, adversity, and things like that. So, aiming to shape that the best I can, because I mean, anything can go wrong in the game. So, preparing them to, no matter what happens, just be prepared to react and then respond appropriately for whatever comes next. And I hope that carries over past our our sport. But that emotional quotient, to use a Raffruese term, mm-hmm. that's that's the difference between good and great, in my opinion.
0: See, I. I think all those things that you said, though, I think maybe yours is a little closer to my day. All those things that you said, are difference between a good coach and a not good coach?
1: <laughs> like It's really integrity. the difference between a good human and a bad human. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean,
0: integrity, that's a baseline. And yeah, I would have thought of that first because I could just kind of take it as a given, but you're yes. 100% right. Um, the one thing I've been fortunate, I think, to, to come to know a lot of good coaches and all of them have those things that you say that they have integrity they they show up. Uh I try to be in shape just because of what you say. Now a little bit though I personally don't tell people to do things I haven't done because nobody I've coached to date well my daughter but you know have won the world championships, have won a lot. So I trained at that level and I have looked kids in the eye before they went out to compete in the junior nationals or wherever and said, I will never ask you to do anything you cannot do. You can do this. But, and I, yeah, I see exactly those coaches that are, you know, 90 pounds overweight and they're on the mat and they can barely tie their belt and they're hollering at kids. So I I teach at a middle school now. I mean, it's a volunteer. Like you said, I don't, I reverse embezzle as my friend put it. I put money into it. It's a school in South Los Angeles. Uh, So yeah,
1: there's also, yeah, when yeah. you volunteer your time, it's also hard, like, like uh, um, I think that there's a weird, so when I retired from the NFL, I wanted to own a gym. Like, mm-hmm. I'd always liked to train, I wanted to own a gym, and then as I owned a gym, I realized I wanted a gym, I just didn't want members, because uh, <laughs> I wanted people that wanted to show up and train, and I didn't, because what I didn't like was the uh, the sense of entitlement with money. So, people pay for the gym membership. They're coming to train. There was a weird sense of entitlement that the, that they had. And I remember thinking, like, fuck you all. I would give all your money back. And if you guys show up, then there's no sense of entitlement. You do what I tell you you leave. And so, with any of the, you know, interns or any other kids that I've ever been asked to work with, a big thing is, like, I don't, you know, I don't want any money. Because, one, uh, I'm not working for you. Um, if you want to show up and, you know, like, so… Um, the way i got into martial arts is i was uh when i was six my older brother got beat up and my dad wasn't much of a fighter you know typical like you know karate kids that uh deal so my dad took him down to the dojo and there was this old japanese dude uh, sensei habura and we went and learned shotokan and after about a couple weeks when when my brother went he ended up taking my other brother and i because he was beating up on us and we did that pretty much every single day for almost like maybe four or five years and then I thought kicking was stupid and I wanted to get into boxing, but there was no boxing place. So I ended up going to a John Barrett kickboxing Academy and they said, Hey, well, we have boxing classes. And then I got into boxing. And then when I was 14, I went outside to go play football, which uh, just felt like fighting against people that didn't know how to use their hands and ended up doing real well with it. But um, it was, uh, it was pretty interesting where, uh, you know, like, and at least in that first, you know, that old Japanese dude, he wasn't very friendly to us. He didn't speak a ton of English. He was extremely, you know, a uh, very hard taskmaster. But everything he taught, like whenever he did the demos, whenever he taught it, it was always so well done and so crisp that you thought in your mind, man, if I could just do it as well as he can. And, like, to me, that was really uh, very powerful. There were no words, uh, you know, like there was no long speeches. It was like, you know, you watch or I do, you watch, you mimic. And... I just remember being like, dude, this whole man's a badass. Like, if we just do what he does, we should be able to kick ass too. And I really liked that element of it. It was one, he showed up. I mean, he showed up every day in his ski. I mean, he did everything and did it way better than all the kids. And he wasn't overly friendly. I didn't need him to be. But he was uh, like, you know, fucking badass. And so, like, to me, as I got more into the coaching or I got more into playing, like, there was a lot of yelling by a bunch of dudes that didn't do what we were doing. And so, I think I always kind of grew up with this idea they're like, man, like uh, players play coaches or players who can't or people that can't do it anymore. And then I kind of got into this where there were a lot of ex-players that went on to be really good coaches. And it wasn't because, you know, their time was just had passed and here they were giving back and doing well. And that's where I viewed it, where I was like, you know, I'm still a good athlete. I can still move and do all these things. My time has passed. And if there's another individual whose time is is now, I can show him. And we've been out and worked with a bunch of, you know, NFL players and college kids and and done all this. And I'm real good on showing them, being like, I will give you the cheat codes for you to be successful. Just do what I do and let me show you exactly how it's done. And if you can mimic it, go on and do it. I'm never gonna ask you to do something I can't do, and I'm never gonna yell at you. If I gotta scream and yell, I'm not the right person. And um, you know, that's just and I, I don't know if that's traditional coaching or or as we've been having this conversation, reflect it reflected back in me. And I thought about that first sensei I had. I mean, that was kind of how he was. There wasn't a lot of words, but his movement was impeccable. I mean, I still can remember, you know, his starch gi with the sound of him punching and kicking and it's, it, you know, sounding like, you know, it, and just like, you know, the hard wooden floors and the sound of his feet hitting the ground. And to me, I just remember thinking like, this dude's a badass. And then you get into this thing and you realize a bunch of these people don't Practice what they preach. And that's the disingenuous thing. I mean, uh, and we, we used to see this all the time in the NFL. Guys would stand up with their Bibles and, you know, talk about Bible study and the Lordness and then get busted with, you know, hookers and cocaine like a week later. And, like, I think I got really, you know, disingenuous or I just really focused on the idea of, like, it's not the words you say. It's the person you are and, more importantly, how you act when people aren't watching. And I think for me personally, and I know this isn't a classic definition, that's what I think of as not only a parent, but as a coach, somebody I want to be around.
0: You know, it's funny. I was multiple times for various organizations, director of development for like yeah, United States, Judo Federation, um, Southern California. I was president of California Judo Inc. And I'm a little person, right? And, and I'm easy to overlook. I don't look like the traditional judo sensei. And there were times when I would slip in somewhere, there's camp going on, and often there's mats piled up in the, you know, the dojo extra mats that they're not using. I'll go go off in the corner and sit up on top of those mats and watch. And I will watch and see how people train when they don't know anybody's watching. And that will tell you a lot about that person as an athlete. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will get, tell you what my definition, my thing between a good coach and a great coach, because all the things that you said, I think, make somebody a good coach. But what's that 1% of coaches? Um, one thing you said it, and it took me a while to learn that you don't, you're not out there trying to, to beat those kids that are training to be on the University of Michigan or Texas Tech team right now. And that took me when I retired from competition. You know, I was used to, I had to beat up everybody on the net. And there were people who didn't think women should compete in judo. And I, that's why I got really good at arm bars. I mean, there were times when somebody and I might have a little come to Jesus meeting and they would slam me around. It was just really kind of messed up, right? Cause I'm a small woman and they would knock me around on the mat. And eventually I would get in an arm bar once and I would hold it there and say, buddy, what do you think the odds are? I will never get in this move again. And if you don't quit pounding on me, the next time I will do a back bend on your arm, and I was crazy when I was young, so so people believed it. Uh, but I used to think that I had to beat up everybody on the mat, or I couldn't coach. And as I got older, even in my like late thirties, you know, for my early forties, that's not. I've got, you know, I'm working as a professor. I've got four kids. I'm running a software company, and I'm you know forty years old. And this friend of mine who was from. England, he was a judo coach, he says to me, do you really think Bella curly gets up on the parallel bars and flips around with those little girls? So your job is not to beat up everybody on the mat. Your job is not to throw everyone with your left uchimata. It's to make sure that kid can do a left uchimata if that's the best throw for them, which – was apparently you learned that on your own without somebody having to beat you over two by four to learn it so yeah well, you. Uh,
1: the funny thing was and people don't believe me um during when i was six uh the dude would walk around and he had uh, like one of those um uh bamboo strip bokens and it was tied up deal and he would walk around and we would hold positions and then he would check you with the stick and you know crack you in the stomach on the legs of a horse stance and he would check us all the time with this stick And i remember coming home and telling my mom i'm like you know he beats us with a stick my mom's like, yeah, it's karate, martial arts. Like, you've seen the movies. What did you expect was going to happen?
0: Oh no, 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 no.
1: Right? No. And uh, no, I, I, I know, but the end. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but
1: I mean, so, so he he would walk around, and as we were holding different, you know, isometric contractions and holds, he would just check you with the stick to see if you were tight. And uh, I remember telling my mom, and my mom was like, Yeah, that's that's what happens. So, like, what did you think was going to happen? And I think that's hilarious now because kids would probably parents would fucking file lawsuits and call the police on it. But at the time we just figured, you know, that's what he does and it's part of the deal. But, uh, no, I mean, it's, um, it, you know, the other one, I've, I've had some amazing coaches, R- Rafael Ruiz, who was, uh, the guy that trained me most of my NFL career. Uh, rough legitimately, uh, all the things that I talked about, Ruff meets the mark on all those. I mean, I remember watching him go in and, and like showing up when he was training and watching him do shit where I'm like, there's 165 pound Filipino dude that I just watched, you know, squat, you know, double his body weight in the front squat and jump off the ground with it. I mean, just such a gifted athlete. And not only that was extremely knowledgeable, was a incredible person, but had, um, just a really interesting commanding respect from just all pieces. Like there was no hole in anything. And, uh, he was the type of person when I met him, I think I was 23, maybe 24, And um, I met him, and he's Filipino, so I didn't know if he was like 24 or 54, right? He's looked the same. (laughs) So we go out and train. He holds himself very well. We train for the entire year. I go back for my second year and, uh, you know, start 16 games, have a great season. And then I show up for that third year, and I was like, we had been training for a little bit. And I was like, oh, it's my birthday next week. He's like, oh, it's my birthday. So we went out to go out to dinner for our birthdays, and they brought my cake that had like 24 candles, and they brought his that had like 25. And I was like, you're 25 years old. And he's like, yeah, I'm like, fuck, I would have never hired you if you were 25, but this dude's fucking. And he was, he's still to this day. Um, you know, when I think of a coach and really just somebody in terms of like mentor and all of those things, Raphael really fits within that. And I, um, so much so I sent text down to enter or intern with him and you know what I'm talking about, but like that piece of, uh, you know, being able to take you on the journey, and be able to show you something that you couldn't do yourself. And I encountered so many coaches whose own, um, fucking small egos were like oh. huge barriers to try to get over that. Like, I mean, I, I had a high school coach who to this day, like, I think if I didn't circumvent him in every single way, I wouldn't have got a chance to play in the NFL. This dude would have set up every, every roadblock he put in, I had to circumvent. And he was just a small minded individual. And I've encountered so many small minded individuals over the year that I'm like, you know, why are you doing this? And it's not for benevolence. It's because this is, uh, you know, it allows them to control their little fiefdom. And I'm sure you ran into this with judo. Oh, you okay. know, you got a dude in an armbar and you're like, you're supposed to be here to help me better, not to fucking prove how great you are.
0: Right. Yeah. I, I'll give you an example.
2: Oh, go ahead. Were you say something? No, I wanted to expand more within the, the sports psychology curriculum that you created. Like, how much did it play into? I mean, from your traveling experience and athletic experience, did you pull that in and create the course or was it based off literature and then how much did coaching play into that or was it focused on the athlete?
0: Well, the sports psychology course I taught was intro to sports psych. So it was just kind of giving people a general idea. And I had a lot of student athletes who take the class. So one of the things we talked a lot about is young kids in sports, why kids do sports, why kids quit sports because I think for a lot of them we're were at that stage where they were in college. And I just liked the statistic the other day, 7% of athletes in high school end up playing college, in college. So they had a ton of friends who had quit and many of them wanted to be coaches. They were going to be PE teachers. They're going to be some other kind of teacher and wanted to coach. So we looked a lot at what are the factors that determine whether kids start a sport and whether they uh, stay in a sport And then the other thing that we looked at were factors that relate to performance. So, because I was teaching, I kind of go through the things that interest me. You know, we looked at anxiety and the relationship between anxiety performance and the relationship between preparation, anxiety, and performance. Like one of the studies I really remember is on wrestling and elite wrestlers, say the top eight in the state, the further away it was from the event, say the state championships or the national championships, the more nervous they were, the more anxiety they felt. And the closer the event got, the lower their anxiety went to the point where when they went out to wrestle, that was the lowest level. Like they went and and I could totally relate to that. Because like when I was competing and I understand this because for the and for the athletes who were not very good, like at the bottom, it was the opposite. Uh, their lowest level of anxiety was far out. And the closer it got, the more anxious they got, because basically they knew they hadn't put in the work. Where for me, I remember every year we had kind of a schedule, the national championship for in April, and come January, you have a little break, Christmas, New Year's, and come January, you decide, are you going to win the nationals or not? And if so, you start training. And in that decision period was The anxiety, like, oh my god, I'm going to do to myself again. I'm going to have, I'm going to be so sore. I'm not going to be able to go out. I'm not going to be able to do this. Uh, I'm going to have to go to this term or this term. Do I really want to do this? And then once you commit to it, right? Then okay, we're all in. I'm going to Tenry, you know, three times a week. I'm going to, I'm meeting with Mitch, our trainer, twice a week. I'm doing these things, and the closer it got, the more I knew, okay, I'm ready. Where once I stepped out on mat, it was showtime. And so I remember that was for other athletes. I would see them. And as the event came, when you're at the nationals or some international tournament and they're hanging out with their friends, they're basically trying to distract themselves from the fact that they have to go out to compete. Where I was that person and I kind of had a reputation, probably deserved to be in something of a bitch because, you know, I'm here. I'm here to win. So people came up and want to talk to me. I'm like, go away. I'm here to win. So it was was fun teaching sports psych, actually. But I never did answer my give you my answer. And I will tell you the thing I saw, all the things you said make a good coach. And I think make a good coach, make a good person. People who are really good coaches at the like world level coached everybody as an individual. And I remember more than once seeing something like this. Like, I was at, I went to visit a friend of mine who was on the on the US team with me, and we're training together. And at the end of it, at the end of practice, the coach comes up to her and said, It comes to me and says, Anne I know you're the best. I know you're the best. You, you know, Diane Bill barely beat you in England. I'll bet she's training now. And I'm like, Oh, she is not training more than me. And I get up and, you know, I start you know, doing more reps. And then he goes over to my friend, who's the lightest weight on the team, and kicks her and says, get your lazy ass up. I am not going to be embarrassed by your fat ass. You get up. There. And he starts screaming at her, right? And I go over to her and I say, you have to put up this shit." I said, I'll hold him. You hit him and we'll walk out of here together. And she says to me, no, that motivates me. I train harder when I'm angry. And I mean, my jaw about hit the floor, right? Because if somebody talked to me like that, I would hit him. You know, you said about the the thing with the kendo stick. Actually, I actually have one in my closet. My kids gave me as a joke. But when I was in Japan, and people who know who Osawa Sensei is will be floored by this. He was probably a tenth degree by the time he passed. He was the head instructor at Waseda University. And I, when I started there, I saw him hitting guys with the kendo stick. And I went up to him and I said, "With all due respect, sir, I understand this is how you do things in Japan, but I'm going to tell you, if you hit me, I'm hitting you back." And he laughed and he said, Yeah, you're in America, I know how things are. Um and yeah, he never did hit me. But he whacked the lot <laughs> of those guys from Wasada. So being able to see this is what this athlete needs as opposed to this one. And I don't think I could be a great coach because I don't have it in. I could not go up and scream yell and swear an athlete. Uh, it, to me, First of all, it would be fake to me because I, if I feel like that about you, don't, don't waste my time. And it's just counter to how, and maybe this is bad in me, but it's counter to how I would want to be treated. And it's so counter to how I would want to be treated. I would have great difficulty even, and I have had athletes who told me or their parents told me that that helped them. And I, 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 if I was mad at you, I could, you know, yeah, I could take you out but you just go scream in some kids'
1: face. Yeah. Some either. Yeah. So, I mean, if that's the mark, I mean, but, uh, you know, if you, like I, I, think it was uh general Patton, uh, talked about, um, you know, leadership and especially being a general was realizing that different people are motivated in different ways. And part of being a great leader was finding each piece for each individual. Yes. And, uh, you know, you can't treat everybody the same. I mean, like you said, some people you got to coddle some some people you got to kick, I mean, think about your own kids. You got four kids. So I got three. Okay. And uh, I can't interact with my kids all in the same way. And, and- it, it's really interesting. Like, my one daughter is much more sensitive than my other daughter is. And, you know, my son's interaction is different. So it, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, like, and I'm sure, you know, uh, uh, we always joke that my mom likes my oldest brother first or uh, the most. And uh, my mom was always said, you like all your children you love all your children differently for different reasons. Sure. And and it's the same thing. And now as a parent, I realize I'm like, man, like I can't, like you can't treat everybody the same. And I think like you said, with coaching, it's probably in the same deal, especially in a sport like judo where, you know, I mean, there's uh, it feels like a lot of intrinsic motivation in all the fight sports. Like there's right. no, uh, you know, like maybe some other sports that aren't so, violent, I guess it would say in nature, you can kind of like kind of send it in some days. Like I think like maybe basketball or maybe baseball, I mean, not football, but some of those other sports, like, you know, you get 186 tries in baseball, like that's how many games are, right? 185, 186 games. No, I'm sorry. 86. How I many? 186. Games? Yeah, 186. So, I mean, every game you don't have to go out trying to like, you know, rip somebody's head off, but you know, you're a professional fighter and you only maybe get one or two chances a year. I mean, you got to be ready on that day when the bell rings. Right. And I think with that deal, like, you'd probably take a little bit of that into your training. Where, like, hey, like, I have to be ready. This thing has to be lethal on this given day. So, I'm sure in judo, same thing. Like, you can't fake it in. You can't phone it in. Or you're going to get hurt. And more importantly, or somebody's going to get hurt. And somebody's going to, you know, potentially get fucked up. And that's not all you want.
0: The thing I always tell athletes is... If you're really training at the elite level, a lot of people say they want to win because it sounds like a good thing to say, but they're not up at 530 running sprints. Um, But you try to be the best in the world on a bad day. That's your goal because you can't guarantee, like you said, the day that you have to show up, you won't have the flu. You know, you that's and I. I always say I trained to be the best in the world on a bad day and I never got to be that good, but I got to be best in the world on a good day and I had a good day. Yeah. But that was not my goal. My goal was to be even better than that.
1: Uh, my deal was I just wanted to be the best and catch everybody on a bad day. So I remember whenever, uh, after every game, I'd call my brother just as like, uh, it's kind of like a superstition. I call, and He watched every game. I always be like, hey man, how did it look? And he's like, you did pretty good. And I'd always say the same thing. I think I caught the guy on a bad day. And He's like, you know what? You've made a career over the last decade of catching some of the best players in the world on a bad day. I'm like, yeah, I just happen to be lucky. I'll just keep catching them on bad days.
0: And, it's so funny because there used to be this judo magazine, it's probably still out there. And every big tournament, they would predict who was going to win. And they never predicted me, right? <laughs> and then the issue after the turn maybe come out, you know, Terry Takamori was predicted to win, but Anne Maria got lucky and won. And, you know, Eve Aronoff was predicted to win, but anne Maria got lucky and won. And so at one, one of the guys from my dojo as a joke cut out like five of these articles in a row and taped them up in a row on the wall of the dojo at Tenry and said to me, you got to be the luckiest fucker in judo because <laughs> every <laughs> time, you know, I got lucky and won. <laughs> yeah, you make your luck.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, how did uh, having kids Kind of change your perspective on training did it did it fuel it did it aid it did it uh you know make you hammer down did it focus you
0: oh yeah two things one is when i had maria i after i had the baby i look and i maybe it's happened with your wife i had like these red lines on my arms and something somebody said to the doctor what is that and they said sometimes you work so hard, like when you're having a baby, for example, that you actually burst blood vessels. Have you ever heard of that? I've never heard of that. Hmm. Oh. So then I thought, You yeah. mean giving birth? Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. No, I mean, uh, um, you know, if you push so hard. I mean, I remember um, differently, but I, I got caught under a big squat and blew all the blood blood vessels in my eyeballs. And yeah, so my well, eyes the, were, yeah.
0: Yeah. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah, And then I thought, well damn, I've fought in judo matches, a few of which I lost. And I never had any burst blood vessels. So what that said to me is even when I thought I was training as hard as I possibly could or fighting as hard as I possibly could, I wasn't. And so that was an eye-opener because I really thought, you know, you're out in the you know, finals or the semifinals in international tournament, really think that you're going as hard as you can. And I remember I was very proud of myself after winning the Austrian open. I come back and I have some of those burst blood vessels on my arm because Gerda Winkelbauer had been the world champion and she was supposed to be the best woman in the world on the mat. I pinned her and she was not getting up. <laughs> so that was, an I mean, an eye opener to me that I always thought in those clutch situations, I was working as hard as I possibly could. And here was a physical sign that, and I guess I'm a little crazy because like you, you know, who would work so hard for the burst blood vessels? But um, and then the other thing is, once I had Maria, I realized, you know, any minute I'm on the mat, I'm away from my kid. You know, I had her in August. And this sounds insane to say I watched. So she was no, she was born September 3rd and I won the U.S. Open at the end of October. Now, you've had children and <laughs> seen how your wife is. And again, in retrospect, that's insane, right? Uh, but at the time, it's just this is what I got to do.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the um, man, it's funny because uh, uh, I was a big baby. I was about 10 and a half pounds, and my mom had me in about 45 oh, okay. minutes. Wow. So, yeah. So it, 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 it yeah. Yeah. Now, my mom's, yeah. So she, uh, her water broke and she drove herself to the hospital. <laughs> Because uh, my dad was supposed to meet her there. He was at work and, uh, and ended up going in, having me at like 730 in the morning. And my dad, who was kind of notoriously you know, cheap ass sometimes, was like, hey, if we get her out of here by noon, can I only pay for a half day? And so I basically got her out of there at noon and then she went home and uh, you know, went down and was making dinner that night. So, uh, And the, the funny story was she goes down to the market and runs into her, her doctor. And it's like, didn't you have, like, a 10-pound baby at 730? And she's like, yeah, I got a family to feed, you know. Um, but, uh, like, my, when I asked my mom about it, and she's like, will you, or, or will, uh, women have always been resilient. Um, you know, she's like, think about, like, you know, uh, you know, women running through the field, having children in the field, wrapping them up and continue to run. And she's like, you know, uh, women are, have always been incredibly resilient or we would have never ever gotten this far. And so, her mom's always been in it. She's like this idea that, you know, women are these delicate flowers with fainting, uh, you know, cushions and, you know, they, they have to go on a spa retreat for a month after they have a child and lay in this. She's like, that's not, you know, the evolution of, of humanity would not have happened if women were not extremely resilient and tough as all get out. So, right. and she's like, you know, this has only been within the last few years where, you know, everybody acts like they're the first ones to ever give birth and it's, you know, this uh, this deal. So, she's uh, you know, and my wife fits within that, you know, like my wife still trains and is extremely resilient. She's like, it's just, you know, how it works. But it's, uh, it's funny you say that because now it fits really within, you know, how we were raised.
0: I had a big fight to continue training while I was pregnant. I mean, now people do that much more, but again, think about it. title IX had passed recently. There weren't very many women on the mat. And then here I was, I was pregnant and I had a baby. And yeah, there were a lot of judo clubs that would not let me train. And there was one guy, Roy Moore, was at the Naval Training Center judo club. He was the coach there. And he said, my wife had eight kids and she broke horses bareback, you know, when she was pregnant with all of us. You come in here and train.
2: Mm-hmm. And I
0: trained there till, um six days before Maria was born. And I was still running and lifting till the day she was born. And yeah, all these people, oh, you're going to ruin your baby's health and psh- She's fine. She's 39. She's CEO of our company. She's in fact, she's in Madrid right now. Sorry, that was the text that I had to look at. She is um, an invited speaker at South Summit on entrepreneurship. So yeah, she turned that (laughs)
1: over. She did. Okay. So how many kids you got? um, One that's 39, four?
0: four? 39, 36, 35, and 24. Wow. Yeah. My my husband passed away. So there's a huge gap. And, And yes, my baby's a little spoiled
1: i have uh, twin girls and my little boy and uh he is the apple of his mom's eye it's uh i i'm always like man i i wasn't that uh like we were kind of treated a little bit different but man i'll tell you that like my little boy is the apple my wife's eye and it's great it's great to see i tell him all the time you are so lucky how so, old is he he's six and then my daughters are ten yeah so, I mean, we, we, obviously know who your daughter is. Uh, did all your kids do judo, uh, or how did that, you know, you obviously exposed them all, um, I mean, know, all do- of my
0: kids try judo. I am a very big believer of that Greek ideal of a strong mind and strong body In fact, sure. my family even has a foundation called the strong mind, strong body foundation. So they all had to try judo. Maria did it very briefly when she was like six was not her thing. Started running track when she was nine, ran all the way through college. Um she also pole vaulted. She was the first girl in the state of North Dakota to do pole vault when she was in high school, where they said pole vault is a male sport. And I put on a suit and went down and met with the athletic director and said, Look at me, look like do I look like I won't sue your sorry ass? Yes. And I had never heard of Title IX. And the next week, pole vault became co-ed sport in the state of North Dakota. So yeah, she pole vaulted um and ran and then Jennifer told me when she was probably nine, I hate all sports and you will never make me like them. And I put her in every sport there was, you know, soccer, swimming, volleyball, basketball. And to this, she was right. Judo. She could have been really good at judo, but no, to this day, she hates all sports. She uh, has a master's from USC. She's a history teacher, phenomenal teacher. Uh, Rhonda started in swimming. Was really good at that. Made the Junior Olympics from Los Angeles, which we've got a ton of swimmers. Uh, decided when she was 11, watching me do judo, that she wanted to do it. And I said, Rhonda, stay in stay in swimming. You're good at it. There's scholarships. You know, you'll every. You know, your mom was world champion. Everybody'll expect you to win the Junior Nationals your first time out. And my friend Hayward Nishioka says, Emrya no one remembers you let the kid do it
1: <laughs> <laughs> nice nice and
0: then my youngest daughter julia started judo at four was good won the state championships the junior nationals and when she was 11 says i want to play soccer and played soccer in high school all the way through college so yeah they're all four like you said all of your all of them are very different
1: so it was uh uh how did the training with Rhonda when she decided to pick up Judah go? Did you, did you coach her or?
0: I, yes. I coached her for the first few years. I was the only one that coached her the first few years because as you were talking about fiefdoms and all else, there's plenty of people that want to, stay, as Rhonda says, they don't want to make champions. They want to take them. So when somebody's doing well, they show up, you know, kind of crawl out of the woodwork. You know, she's 11 years old, and she was a scrawny little 11-year-old kid who'd never done judo. And a bunch of these kids that started younger, so I took her to my friends' clubs, and I would have them show her some stuff. And a lot of them didn't want to be bothered because I got this kid a junior national champion. And so I would, I didn't want to be teaching her arm bars and teaching her too much stuff right away. I didn't want her to turn into a little version of me. So I taught her a couple of my favorite throws, but I would take her to lots of different clubs and grab somebody I knew who was good at a specific throw. She's left-handed, I'm right-handed. You know, I get them to show her things that I thought would be good. And so, yeah, the first few years, it was mostly me taking her her places. And then once she got into um, the eighth grade, so she'd been in... must have been a couple of years. I said, next year, you're going to high school nationals. And and that's the first tournament on the point roster to make the junior world team. And I said, all these people are going to be there to make a statement. And you are going to be this little next year. You're going to be this little high school freshman. People are going to try and arm bar you because they'll think you've never seen arm bars. I said, I'm going to arm bar you every time you breathe this year. Uh, Oh, my Mm -hmm. gosh. Mm -hmm. I hate you and I hate you and I hate Tracy Shiama, who was the head instructor of the club at the time. Oh, but yeah, she got to the junior, the high school national's the next year, and most of her matches, bull rides, have been shorter or longer. I mean, she would go out eight seconds throwing the kid. Um, you know, 10 seconds on guard a kid. So yeah, and then after that, when she started doing really well, then a lot of people just kind of came out. Get
1: uh, instead of uh, out of the woodwork I like to ref- I like to say they come out from under rocks they come out <laughs> they come slithering out from underneath rocks not necessarily out of the woodwork mm-hmm.
0: but some of them to be perfectly fair were coaches not all of them some of them slithered out from under a rock others everybody has their strengths right like some people like I teach college right uh, I teach graduate level statistics sometimes uh, rarely I will teach undergraduates I could not teach kindergarten. There is not enough Prozac. It doesn't mean I'm better than kindergarten teachers. It's not that I don't like little, you know, five-year-olds. They're adorable, but not my strength. So there are people who are actually really good coaches, but teaching kids, put your foot there, grab a little higher. Um, When you, you know, when you push some pressure on her, her neck there. She's likely to stick that. They're they're at arm. They're not that, but they're very good at the upper level. So those coaches, I have no no uh, trouble with. But I don't know if you, you had this. Probably you did. when she became successful in football, everybody who ever worked out with you was your coach, and they helped you get there. And oh yeah, but I did. Once she once she started after fourteen fifteen, I would take her to more clubs where she could get pushed harder because she's 11, 12, 13. Okay. Maybe, you know, I'm 40 years old, but I can still, you know, push a young kid, but I was never known for being particularly fast. It's funny. I know you're, you talk a lot about strength and conditioning. My big advantage is I was a lot physically stronger than the other women in my division. First time I ever walked in gold's gym up here in LA and I saw the women's bench press record. And I'm like, I can beat that. And I had never done a bench press in my life, laid down and broke the record. Um, it wasn't very high, right? There were that many women really in weightlifting at the time. So I was really physically strong, but I wasn't particularly fast. And you only get the slower you get, right? So by the time she was 15, I started taking her to clubs where there'd be other young kids at her level. And the funny thing is for girls and women, Often a boy who's a little bit younger. And for women, sometimes teenage boys are a great training partner because physically their strength is about the same. And, you know, probably there's, if they're about the same age, their skill level is about the same. So I started taking her to clubs and putting her in with, you know, some of the teenage boys that were about her age. And then when she got tougher, I took her to my old judo club, Tenry. And they are very old school remember she made the the world team and the world team coach called me up and wanted to know how she was doing. I said, Oh, there's a guy from Japan here and him and Rhonda are playing King and Matt, you know, and and you probably have similar things in football where you're trying to show who's toughest and you're just going at it. And he says, aren't you going to intervene? I said, no, she's holding her own. I think I'll let it go. Um, But I took her to places where she could be really pushed. But I also, am not around to make friends and influence people, right? This is my kid. I did not go to coach judo at the international level because I know what it takes and I have other interests. I run a company. I feel a lot of responsibility, my employees, to keep this company going and make a payroll every two weeks. So until Ronnie came along, I had no particular interest in being an international coach. I knew what it took to win And if I saw something was not in her best interest, I didn't need any new friends. There have been times when I walked out on the mat and got between her and some huge guy and said, you're done. And they'll go, oh, no, I wasn't. It's like, you're done. And she would, of course, be just all mad. Mom, I can take him. I can take him. I said, yeah, you know, you're 130 pounds and that dude's 250 and he just slammed you. No. Right. That's one of the things from sports psychology and also looking at statistics in judo. The factors that are related to injury, um, too many people on the mat, not good facilities, and too big a disparity in size. So, even though I'm an idiot, and when I was young, there were no weight divisions for much of my, tr- my career, and I was 103 pounds when I started, I fought women who were more than two and a half times my size. Um, I fought in the men's division, I did all this crazy shit. I also had a lot of injuries. And yeah, I had no no compunction about walking out and stopping it if I thought somebody was suffering from testosterone poisoning.
1: So how? Uh, so then, all of a sudden, she kind of grows and becomes uh, you know uh, you know formidable judo player, uh, competes in the Olympics. I think she uh, won a bronze. Yes. And then gets into the UFC and. You know, goes in and becomes a, a big star. I mean, that kind of hit right at the right time because at the time, the UFC was very, very uh not in depth seeing women fight. And she kind of broke the mold on that.
0: Well, like I was saying about you make your own luck, right? um Yeah. And I, <laughs> Rhonda reminds me of this constantly. Anytime I tell her something and she's like, remember, mom? So she comes back from the Olympics, she's going to go into the UFC. She's going to be a professional fighter. And I said, Rhonda, this is the stupidest fucking idea you've ever had in your life. And coming from you, that says something. You know, you're super smart. Rhonda went to a school for kids that were gifted in math and science. So we figured, and I was at USC, where she could have gone for free all the way through her doctorate. We figured, okay, you had a good run. You went to two Olympics. You know, you have three sisters. We all still supported you through this. We made a lot of sacrifices. Um so now you go to college, you get a job, you do what people do. And I said, I'm an old lady. You know, I've got, you know, your younger sister is still in elementary school. I'm not supporting able body adult. And she says, No, mom, no. Right. And, and you no, know, not that, and it's not that I didn't think she was a great athlete, but it's just like you said, I'm gonna go win the Olympic medal in embroidery. There isn't one. And she goes, No, mom, I'm gonna make Dana White love me. You watch. And I said, You got a year. We will support you for a year. And after that, if you have not made a success of this, you know, you give it up, you go to college and you know, go get your PhD in oceanography. You're brilliant. You know, you're wasting. I said, let the stupid people get punched in the face. Well, and as she reminds me, anytime she wants to do something now, I don't know, oh, that's good. Yeah, you said the same thing about the UFC, mom.
1: uh just i'm laughing because i i when we were uh prepping for the podcast uh, i watched a clip of her in the um in the professional wrestling deal and i rem- and as i'm hearing you talk you're like uh here's this you know gifted individual that has the opportunity to go on and you know get phds which was kind of similar for my dad my dad graduated high school at like 16 and then got his uh got through college and then got his law degree by the time he was 21 and was one of the smartest people i've ever been around and i remember like him you know, like, uh, you know, the idea of putting your hand in the dirt and beating people up and football and all this in terms of like going to school was, you know, there's a little bit of reservation. So I can see where all of a sudden, hey, here's a, this gifted individual and this opportunity to do it and you want to go professional wrestling.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, she decided she wanted that I and mean, she loves it. There's that. And I believe, yeah, you know, Rhonda has worked very, very hard from the time she was a child. And if she wants to do this thing and she loves it and it pays the bills, good on her.
2: Awesome. Well, you do some, uh, you have some charities involved in that. So can you speak on those and some of the actions that you're, you're investing your time in now?
0: Well, I started a company with a couple of co-founders from the Spirit Like Nation uh, and it morphed into seven generation games. So we started looking at... What made a real difference in my life? <laughs> what made a real difference in my life? And two things. One was judo, because a lot of my friends are either dead or on their third strike in prison, right? Or they've got, you know, four kids by some guy they met as a teenager and now they're great grandparents many times over. And I was good at judo. So I often was not out on the streets when my friends were and I was good at math. And because I was good at math, I got a scholarship to college. Like uh,
1: your dog is hilarious. Uh, <laughs> he's rolling around. He's like stretching his <laughs> arms, trying to get this He's, he's, <laughs> he's, he's <laughs>
0: that is Frank Zappa. So uh, the,
1: the name fits same haircut.
0: Yes, exactly. That's what I was at. Yeah, so I was really good at math. And because of that, I got a scholarship to college. I graduated from Washington University in St. Louis when I was 19. I had my MBA when I was 21. And that changed the whole trajectory of my life. And I see many, you know, I would see on the reservation where I was working at the time, many kids who started falling behind in math when they were fifth, sixth, seventh grade, And by the time they got to the tribal college, they were years behind and it might take them, you know, four or five years to get their AA degree. Many people didn't come to the tribal college until they were in their 20s because they had dropped out of high school and then they realized, okay, this is not going anywhere. And then they got their GED and they went back. And I see the same thing in, you know, in South Los Angeles where I volunteer. And it's such a waste, right? So I was thinking about how, what could I do about this? Back when I was in grad school, I wanted to make computer games. But if you think about in the 80s, what computers could do, right? And so I kind of followed that for a while. And everything was text-based and there was no, you know the very first Mac was out there. So there wasn't that much you could do. And I went off and I taught college, started a software company doing statistical software. And yeah, so I kind of looped back to it when the kids were older and I could afford to take more of a risk when I didn't have three little kids that were counting on me and I wasn't a widow and came up with this idea that I would make games that taught math around stories that interested kids because every game has to have a story. So we started out on the Spirit Lake Nation and the Turtle Mountain um, Reservation up in North Dakota. And the first couple of games were about there's always been math. Say your tribe uh, had an epidemic, which is funny now that this was our example. But if there was an epidemic, people back in the day, they didn't just say, oh, we're all going to die now. They knew about medicine. So what was it you would use for medicine? And if you needed four for each person and there were 24 people, what would happen if you came back with the wrong number? Well, people would die. We can not really show people dying in elementary school. So we showed people puking, which turns out... Um, you have 10-year-olds. They're highly amused by puking. So we made these games. And the, and the next one was about the Ojibwe migration. This woman, I did not know. She's a friend. A friend of mine calls me up and says, young lady, which made her my friend right then. Uh, have you heard of the Ojibwe migration? Have you heard of the Ojibwe migration? Because I had not. Mm-mm. Okay. So the Ojibwe what some people call the Anishinaabe, the people who live in the middle of like North Dakota, Minnesota, the indigenous, some of the tribes there, they originally came from the Maritimes of Canada, and like up around Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, way. And about 500 years ago, no one knows why. There's theories and myths and legends, but whatever. But they walked. Remember, horses hadn't come been brought to America yet. They yeah, walked until the
1: Spanish. Yeah the, yeah, the horse didn't show up until the Spanish came.
0: Yeah, so they picked up whatever they had. They walked from the Maritimes of Canada to the middle of the United States, and so that's where Fish Lake starts. And why did they do that? Maybe because one theory is that the, there was less food, fishing was getting worse, and so there's if last year an eighth of the fish you caught at this spot, you know, a fifth of the fish you caught here were over foot long, were you know long enough that you didn't throw them back. And this so far this year, it's an eighth. Is the fishing worse? You can wait till the end of fishing season, but if you're wrong, you know, you've starved to death. So we put everything in terms of survival and stories, and that's how we started. And the research we did showed the kids who played our games improved their math scores three times as much. So that's how we got started. And that's what we're doing to this day. We've got 20 games out. We also have a few games that we did based on decision-making that are distributed through a foundation because they're aimed at kids who are really high-risk, whose parents are maybe addicted to alcohol and math and are in really high-risk situations. So those are not marketed alongside the math games because if you're a math teacher and then um, you download this game that has questions on if you've ever been molested, maybe you forgot. Uh, so yeah, there's a Seven Generation Games, which is, producing games we and then the funny thing about that is world's worst example of marketing most of our business these days comes from customized games which is something i never even thought where somebody comes to us and they say i have an idea for a game can you make it so for example uh we get a call saying you made these games in spanish and english can you make a game in lakota in english so well sure we can do that but nobody here speaks lakota Obviously, you know, a lot of speech papers says, well, we're calling from Pine Ridge. We speak Lakota. So here's the game we want you to make. So I'm doing, we're doing one with, I went to the Warm Springs, Oregon a couple of weeks with Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. Uh, a software publisher, educational games publisher said, we want a game on statistics. You're a statistician, you make games. So that's what we're doing now. And one thing I'm really excited about is we're working with a group that does. MMA, and they work with very high-risk youth, and they want us to make a game about sports, but integrating all the stuff these young people have to learn that they don't want to learn, like geography, history. So we're going to have a section on jiu-jitsu, and then in that, you'll, you'll learn where, where does jiu-jitsu come from, what comes from Japan and Brazil. Here's where Japan is. Here's where Brazil is. Here's the history of each. So Yeah, that's what we do. We're gamifying education. And then we have the foundation that for schools that can't afford to pay, we have people who donate money so they can get the games as well. And the foundation also supports our judo program in South Los Angeles. Shout out to Bound Judo. Uh, We have had every kid who went through that program graduate from high school. And most of them have gone to college. And this is in an area where the high school graduation rate each year fluctuates from 40 to 60%. And so I'm not on that end focused on the elite athletes, but more on the, uh, everybody talks about, oh, building character and stuff like that, right? But not that many programs walk the walk. You know, I will kick you out if you have bad grades, if you get in trouble in school, because there's four other kids waiting for your spot. And I don't care how good you are, how many turn you to.
1: Cool. Awesome. So if, uh, um, you know, I, I always think about, um, you know, you have such a, a diverse experience, you know, from starting in judo and then traveling into this. I mean, if you could go back and give your younger self any advice, what, what would it be?
0: I needed a lot of advice when I was younger. <laughs> well,
1: it sounded like you were angry. And uh, I was
0: very angry. I was in foster care. I was in juvenile hall. Um, Yeah, I did the getting passed around families route. So I was a very angry kid. I, you know, I was less, I was less a believer of this when I was young than I am now that everything happens for a reason. And I know Rhonda and I talk about this a lot and she said, you know, she wouldn't change a thing in her life because Everything that she did led to where she is. And, you know, not that I don't love my husband, I, because I do, but, you know, when I think about when her dad died, you know, her and Jen's dad, my husband, I, I mean, for a long time I thought I would change that. But then if I changed that, you know, I wouldn't have my little Julia. I wouldn't have a lot of things. So it's hard to say. Um, I, the best piece of advice I think I can give is just never, never, never give up because there's so many times, even now, like with the company, we're, you know, we're in the middle of raising a community around now, we're in a much better place than where obviously we started. But there's times when, you know, I had to make the payroll out of my savings because we were you know, we just didn't have the money coming in or we would have some big contracts that we'd end and we hadn't brought in another one yet. So whether it's, You know, having knee surgery three weeks before the world trials or, you know, having my husband, you know, have an accident and then slowly deteriorate in front of me and pass away over five years. There's just been times when I thought, oh, you know, why is this happening to me? And what am I going to do? And I just think that the best advice is never, ever, ever give up. You know, our, a, a priest who's a family friend of ours said in the Bible, it says it came to pass, not it came to stay. So I try to remember that.
1: <laughs> this too shall pass, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Well, thanks for tuning in another episode of Power Athletic Radio.
2: Yes, thank you very much. If they, if our listeners okay. want to learn more, where can we direct them to, to follow these initiatives or, you know, learn more about what you're doing?
0: Uh, they can go to seven. It's the number seven generationgames.com. I do a blog there called Founders Corner when they get around to it. They can follow me on Instagram, Maria 7 Again, the number seven, Jen. Mostly pictures of of all the places and my lovely grandchildren, my dog, Frank. But occasionally there's game pictures. uh, And on Twitter at Dr. Dr. Annemaria. A smarter person would have had the same account across all things, but hey. Um, I'm always happy to talk to people about making games, about judo, about business. If you work with foster kids or kids at Juve Hall, I'm more than happy to talk to them about how it gets better. And do not let yourself be defined by other people's expectations. I mean, there's a lot of people that expect me to be in Chino women's prison right now. And proved I'm wrong.
2: (laughs) Nice. Cool. All right. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks right. so much for having me. It was delightful
1: talking to you. Awesome. Well, good luck in your travels.
0: All right. train, yeah. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can learn more about Anne Maria and Seven Generation Games on Instagram. Just follow at Anne Maria Seven gen That's G-E-M. Until next time. Uh, bye.